read less scripture. But this past week, I did find myself wondering, do any of us ever make a New Year's resolution to spend more time in prayer? And part of the reason I ask that is that if you look at the statistics, American Christians apparently tend to struggle with prayer. According to a study done by the Pew Research Group, only 55% of American Christians say they rely a lot on prayer when making important life decisions. 55%. And then 63% of American Christians say that prayer is an essential part of their Christian identity. Now, of course, statistics can be misleading. People don't always answer surveys truthfully. However, assuming that those numbers are relatively accurate, it's safe to say that prayer isn't as central in our lives as it was to those we read about in Scripture. Even though 55% and 63% are majorities, that remaining 45% and 37% is still a lot of people. And while I don't have any statistics to back it up, my own experience in the church indicates that we tend to place a much higher emphasis on church attendance and Bible reading than we do on prayer. And then in my own personal experience, prayer can be a challenge as well. I don't pray as much as I need to. I often arrogantly rely on my own wisdom rather than turning to God for help. And if I'm not careful, I can quickly find myself praying out of shallow routine rather than a genuine desire to be in God's presence. And sometimes I find prayer to be more of a chore and not so much a privilege. Now, I've never had a problem with church attendance, even when I wasn't being paid to be here. And for years, I've taken great pleasure in reading scripture. But at least for me, prayer has been much more of a struggle. So this morning, I'd like to spend time talking about that less common Christian New Year's resolution of prayer. And when it comes to learning about Christian prayer, I think there's no better place to turn than a prayer that many of us may already know by heart. It's a prayer straight from the mouth of Jesus, shared with his disciples when they straight up asked him how to pray. We're speaking, of course, about the Lord's Prayer. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Feel free to use the Bibles that we provide if you didn't bring one, and take one of those Bibles home if you don't own one, or if you forgot to buy someone a Christmas gift. Give them that Bible. But usually at this time in our service we pray. I'm going to pray, but before we do that, I'd like to read the Lord's Prayer together. That's a perfect way to start our prayer today. So those words will be on the screen. You're welcome to read those with me. We'll all read those words aloud, starting in Matthew chapter 6, second half of verse 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now I'll pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you that so many of us were able to get here, get here safely, 
I pray that we get home safely as well. Father, we pray for those who aren't here, whether it's because they're traveling, because of illness. We know there are a number of those folks, but there might be people who also couldn't make it out today. And so we pray for them, watch over them and keep them safe, especially in the cold days ahead of us. And Father, I pray that as we look back on 2017 and as we look forward to 2018, we would keep in mind that you hold our world in your hands, that whatever plans we have for 2018, whatever goals we've placed upon ourselves, we ultimately look to you for sustenance and provision. We ultimately place our lives in your hands and know that you have what's best in store for us eternally. Whether our resolutions fail, whether our goals are accomplished, whether 2018 is a great year or a bad year, thank you that all along in the 12 months ahead, we'll know that you are still God and you are still in charge. We thank you for Christ who died for us. We thank you that we have the privilege of taking communion and remembering what he did on the cross. We love you. We praise you. Be with us as we read your word this morning. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I know I'm not the only Christian who struggles with prayer. I've talked to many fellow believers who want a consistent and healthy prayer life. They see how much prayer is stressed in the pages of Scripture. And yet, for some reason, we just don't always know quite how to get started. But we can take heart in the fact that we're not alone in this. In Luke's Gospel, the disciples come right out and ask Jesus to teach them how to pray the way John taught his disciples how to pray. Now, I think we can assume that these disciples probably noticed how important prayer was in Jesus' life. There are numerous passages where Jesus devotes himself to prayer. And it's certainly possible that the disciples were present for many of those prayers. Maybe the disciples feel the same thing that you and I have felt when you're around someone with a vibrant prayer life. You hear that person pray, and you wish that you could pray like they do, humble and thoughtful. When you're around one of those people, when you listen to them pray, you can tell that they really, truly know the God that they're speaking to. And you want the same thing. Well, the disciples want the same kind of prayer life that Jesus has. And so they ask him to teach them. And Jesus is all too willing to help. But before we look at the Lord's Prayer more closely, let's pull back and look at the larger context of the Sermon on the Mount, stretching three chapters in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5 through 7. In this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls his disciples to a new way of life, a way of life that will radically differ from the world around them. He paints them a new picture of what righteousness looks like, and that turns much of what they already believed on its head. This new kind of righteousness should be put on display in every area of life, specifically areas like anger, lust, divorce, oaths, how you treat your enemies, how you handle your wealth, worry, and judging others. And then in the Sermon on the Mount, there are those radical challenges that Jesus issues to his disciples. We see the first one in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. 
Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and Pharisees were the most holy and righteous people around. How could the disciples' righteousness possibly exceed theirs? And then in verse 48 of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. It was bad enough when Jesus said we had to be more righteous than the religious leaders. But here he tells us that we must be perfect. What's he getting at? But for now, let's hone in on Matthew chapter 6, and specifically verses 1 through 18. We read in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. In the following verses, Jesus will address the three classic religious duties within many different religious systems. Those duties are giving to the poor, prayer, and fasting. There are several recurring phrases that Jesus uses to tie these topics together. He repeatedly says to be seen or praised by others. He says they have received their reward. And he talks about the God who sees in secret and who is the true giver of eternal rewards. But let's start in Matthew chapter 6, verse 2, the first section on giving to the poor. So Jesus says, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. So according to Jesus, how should we give to the needy? Well, he says quietly, privately, and humbly. And then he says how not to give to the needy. Loudly, publicly, and pridefully. He instructs the disciples not to give to the poor in order to be praised by men. Now, of course, if being praised by men is what you really want, then by all means, give loudly and publicly and pridefully. You'll get your praise from men, all right, but that's all the praise you'll get. You'll get your temporary reward, but Jesus says you'll receive no eternal reward. And then we jump forward to verse 16, the passage about fasting. We'll come back to the parts about prayer. In verse 16, Jesus says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So the same instruction that Jesus gave about giving to the poor... He then brings over to fasting. So how should we fast? The same way we give. Quietly, privately, and humbly. And how should we not fast? 
loudly, publicly, and pridefully. It's the exact same instruction. He makes it clear that we are not to give. We are not to fast for the sake of showing off our supposed holiness before men. Because if that's why we give, and if that's why we fast, it's true that we may be admired by some in this life. But Jesus has also made it clear, and his disciples know, that this life isn't all there is. So Jesus has no problem with his disciples giving to the poor. No problem with his disciples fasting. But the problem is our attitude when we do it. If we give and we fast out of a desire to earn the praise of men, Jesus says we're hypocrites. Hypocrites. We're insincere. We're just actors playing a part, putting on a show for the sake of an audience's applause. But the scary thing is that if we're all honest, even the most humble and mature believers in this room, there's always that little tiny part of us that loves the applause and loves the praise of men. Now, if you couldn't already tell from my imposing physique, I am a consistent runner. And I used to be a lot heavier than I am now, and I hated running, but then a few years ago I decided to take better care of myself, and now I've grown to really love running. And 99% of the time, I run outside mainly because I don't own a treadmill and don't want to pay for a gym membership. And that means that you'll often see me out running, whether it's 90 degrees on June 31st or whether it's 20 degrees in the month of January. Now, the truth is that sometimes I don't want to walk out the door when it's extremely hot or extremely cold. Sometimes I want to stop in the middle of my run and just walk the rest of the way. But then when I need that little bit of motivation to go out the door or finish my run well, I'll sometimes remind myself of all the people driving past on 116th. And I will imagine them sitting in their cars and saying to themselves, wow, what a dedicated runner that guy is. I wish I had his same level of determination. He must be really tough to be out there running in this weather. Now, the reason I share this is to show that when it comes to running, I like to imagine the praise of men. And I assume that you may have some area in your life where you're tempted to pursue the praise of men as well. And it's scary to think that our desire for the world's applause can motivate not just relatively neutral actions like running. But our desire for the world's applause can even motivate our prayer if we're not careful. But then as the passage continues in verses 5 and 6 of Matthew chapter 6, Jesus gives us all the same warnings about prayer that he gave about fasting. Don't do it obnoxiously for the sake of man's praise. If you do it like that, you're nothing but a hypocrite. And you may get your reward from men, but you'll have no reward to look forward to from God. Instead, he tells the disciples to pray in private, where men may not be able to see you, but God still can. These words may remind us of Jesus' parable in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. In that parable, a Pharisee prays exactly the wrong way. 
He prays loudly, pridefully, drawing attention to himself. But then a tax collector prays exactly the right way. Humbly, quietly, drawing less attention to himself. And in that parable, only one of those men goes home at peace with God. And it's not the Pharisee. Now the truth is that if Jesus stopped right here in this passage, verses 5 and 6, the prayer section would match up perfectly with the giving and fasting sections. But unlike in those sections, for some reason, Jesus feels the need to elaborate much more about prayer. And that takes us to verse 7. Jesus says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. We've seen Him use the term hypocrites several times already, but here He breaks out another term, Gentiles. What's the difference between the two? Well, in these verses, hypocrites are the ones who do religious duties to show off before men. But Gentiles, they're the ones who perform religious duties to try and show off before God. They don't just want men to praise them. They want God to praise them. And they think that by saying a lot of big holy, pious-sounding words, they can then manipulate God into doing what they want. However, Jesus has a stark warning for them. He makes it clear that using big, impressive, loaded words is not going to impress God. They would do well to remember the wisdom of Ecclesiastes chapter 5, starting in verse 1. There we read, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. It is foolish to think that we can impress God or manipulate God by trying to impress him with big words. Then we continue in verse 9 and get to the actual prayer itself. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. A few years ago, the Church of England started a campaign called Why Pray? And as part of the campaign, they showed short advertisements, or since we're talking about England, we'll say advertisements, during the previews at movie theaters. And the advertisement was pretty simple. It was just images of people praying with the words of the Lord Prayer being read in the background. Now, predictably, some of the theaters faced backlash from some non-Christians 
asking for the advertisement to be banned because it was offensive. Theaters then faced more backlash from the Christians, offended by the backlash from the offended non-Christians. What a world we live in. But the truth is that when you look at the words of the Lord's Prayer, I think, in a sense, the non-Christians were right. They're right about the fact that this prayer is offensive, though maybe not offensive for the same reasons that they gave. Think about it. In the Lord's Prayer, we read that God's name is to be hallowed and glorified, not ours. His kingdom is to be pursued, not ours. His will is to be done, not ours. We need him to provide bread for our survival. That's a way of acknowledging that we aren't as independent and self-sufficient as we think we are. That line about asking for forgiveness implies that we're guilty of sin, which is something we don't always like to admit. Asking for God's protection from temptation is an acknowledgement of how easily we can fall into it if we're not careful. To many in our world today, and maybe even to us as believers, the Lord's Prayer can be a shocking and offensive reminder that there is one God, and it's not you, and it's not me. As the author of Ecclesiastes put it, Remember that God is in heaven and we are on earth. The Lord's Prayer can be a shocking and maybe even offensive reminder of just how powerful God is and how fragile we are. So like giving and like fasting, we do not pray to impress others. And we especially do not pray in some foolish attempt to impress and manipulate God. Our prayers are to be offered quietly, privately, and humbly, knowing that even though others won't see us or hear us, God does. And ultimately, he's the one we want to be seen and heard by the most anyway. Now, as we see in the Lord's Prayer, there's no shame in praying for the things that we need, asking for God's provision, asking God to forgive us, asking God to protect us. God wants us to speak to him. But as sinners, we must be careful to check our hearts and check our motivations, even when we do something like pray. But then there's one final thing we haven't read. Yet again, Jesus feels the need to elaborate more on prayer than he did on giving and fasting. And the words we're about to read might be the most offensive of them all. Closing the passage in Matthew chapter 6, verse 14. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So after the prayer is over, Jesus comes back to the topic of forgiveness one more time. Why the connection? Well, simply put, how can someone who knows God, someone who spends time in his presence regularly through prayer, someone who acknowledges their need for forgiveness the way the Lord's Prayer tells us to, and then has the audacity to ask God to give us forgiveness, 
How could someone like that fail to forgive others? That's the question that Jesus forces us to wrestle with. The lesson is similar to the lesson in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. That's the parable of the unforgiving servant. A servant who would dare accept his master's forgiveness for a massive debt, but then fail to forgive someone else a minor debt, hasn't really understood forgiveness at all. Now, if you've never read the Lord's Prayer this closely before, a few questions may come up right now, and understandably so. So as we kind of wrap things up, I'd like to focus on three of those questions. Question number one, if God already knows what we need, which is what Jesus said in verse 8, then why do we pray? God doesn't need us to fill him in on the happenings of our world or of our lives. He sees everything. He knows everything. So we pray not to make God aware of things happening. We pray as an act of worship. We pray as an expression of trust. And we show it as our desire to be in a real relationship with him. You think about it, and a close friendship or a close relationship, you don't talk to someone only when you need something or only when you have important news to share. In a real relationship, you talk with someone, you spend time with someone simply because you treasure being in their presence, whether you need something or not, whether there's news to share or not. So we pray as an act of worship. Another question that might come up is, will God ever lead us into temptation? That's from verse 13. That question comes up because James chapter 1 verse 13 says that God tempts no one with evil. Some Christians have even proposed finding ways to reword this section of the Lord's Prayer, but unfortunately the original text is pretty clear. Well, look at it this way. If a husband says to his wife, Please don't ever leave me. That doesn't mean that he expects her to actually do it. He's simply expressing his desire to be with her. He knows that she will be faithful to him, but he says it anyway because he loves her. It's true that God may test his people. We see that in the pages of Scripture. But again, it's safe to say that God does not tempt us. And then finally, question number three, in light of all this talk about locking yourself in your room and praying in private and making sure that only God who sees in secret can actually see you, the questions sometimes come up, well, is it wrong to pray in public? Well, like we've said, it's all about your attitude. If you're only praying in public to try and impress other people or impress God, then yes, in that instance... Praying in public is sin. But there are also tons of examples in Scripture of prayer being a major part of the church's corporate worship when we gather together. So by all means, pray at restaurants. Pray in the break room before you eat lunch. But be aware that we can be tempted to perform acts like giving and praying and fasting for the wrong reasons. It's a temptation that we must guard against. We do not do these things to earn favor with men, and especially not to try and earn favor 
with God. And like always, we must be careful. Likewise, the whole concept of New Year's resolutions can be a little bit problematic. We don't just want to pray because we think it will make us healthier or happier or improve our self-esteem in the new year. However, I don't think there's any harm in committing yourself to pursuing prayer more intentionally in 2018. There are far worse ways to spend your time. However, many of us may sit here and say, you know, it sounds good praying more in 2018. But we sometimes don't know how to start. Well, my guidance to you would be simply start here. Look at the Lord's Prayer and pray the Lord's Prayer the way we did together earlier. It's the one that Jesus taught his disciples. Read the other prayers in the pages of Scripture. Prayers from people like David and Solomon and Daniel and Paul. Keep an eye out for the things that they emphasized. Look at how they prayed and learn from them. There's no guarantee that praying more in 2018 will make you happier or healthier, though it might. But if nothing else, this teaching on prayer should humble and amaze us as we're reminded that the God of the universe wants to be in a close relationship with us. It's amazing to think that we are on speaking terms with God because of what Christ has done for us. And it's amazing to think that God wants us to pray so much that his son Jesus would explicitly teach us how to do it. And that's what we read in the Lord's Prayer. So as we close, let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you that we have a hearing with you, that we can speak to you, not because we're so righteous, not because we're so good, but because your son has died for us. Thank you that you want to hear from us, you want to be in relationship with us. And Father, I pray that you would put in our hearts and put in our minds that same desire that we would long to be in your presence, that we would long to speak with you, that we would view prayer not as some religious duty we perform to earn favor, not as some chore that we have to do just because we're Christians, but we would view prayer as the privilege that it really is, that we have the privilege and joy of speaking with you. Thank you that your son Jesus taught us how to pray. It simply kind of leaves us with no excuse. If we're wondering where to start, if we're wondering how to pray, we turn to this passage, and it's so, so clear. So, Father, I pray that in the year ahead, with whatever comes, whatever goes, good or ill, I pray that we would turn to you in prayer, that we would lean on you more and on ourselves less, that we would speak to you more and spend less time by ourselves. Thank you for your kindness and your mercy and your grace. Thank you that you forgive sinners through your son's cross. We love you. We praise you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.